0: Entrepreneurs Over 40, Episode 3, featuring Stephen Key, talking about how you can create a product.
1: The biggest benefit about product licensing today is really speed. You see, the success rate of startups is very low. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. And if you're really successful today, you will be copied. You're listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40, the show for somewhat mature entrepreneurs and side hustlers. And now your host, Greg Mills.
0: Our guest today is a lifelong entrepreneur and a 2018 2019 American Association for the Advancement of Science Lemelson Invention Ambassador. He's achieved repeated success as an independent product developer, including licensing over 20 products and winning 20 industry awards. He's the inventor of record on 24 patents. He has over five best selling books on Amazon, with the last one being Licensing Ideas Using LinkedIn. You can read his articles online for Forbes an entrepreneur and watch them on InventRight TV. Without further ado,
1: let me introduce the one and only Stephen Key. <laughs> well, thank you for that introduction. I'm always like, who is that? Who is that person? I never cared much about resumes, but I guess it adds up over time, doesn't it? Yes, but, sir. Yeah. Thank you for inviting me.
0: Oh, thank you for being here. I was going to ask, can you take a few moments and fill in the gaps from that intro and bring us up to speed with what's going on with you now?
1: Yes, I'm. I do quite a bit of writing on intellectual property, but I also write a lot about the business model of licensing ideas to companies, which a lot of people don't haven't really heard about. Um, I'm. I guess I'm an inventor. I think that's kind of a very lofty word, or You know, I'm a creative person. I have ideas and I want, I don't want to start a business. And I would like for a company to take it to market for me. And that's what licensing is all about. You're you're going to rent your idea to a company and they're going to take it to market for you and you're going to collect royalties on every one they sell. So I write quite a bit on that topic, on licensing for creative people like myself that just don't want to Mortgage the house or quit your job, or maybe you just don't want to have employees. I'm all the you know, I don't want to have, I don't want to do any of those hard things. What I want to do is be creative and let companies do all the work for me. All right. Did you come from an
0: entrepreneurial or inventors, you know, type background? Did anyone in in your family while you were growing up, you know, start a business or invent anything? Or,
1: you know, that's really a great question. I don't think anybody's ever really asked me that before. My my father was a company man. Uh, he got laid off after 25 years, which I probably, looking back, it probably did have an impact on me. Um, he, did, he loved what he, he did, though. He worked for General Electric, loved it. And he always told me, you know, if you find something you truly love to do, you never work a day in your life. And I don't think my father ever did. Uh, once he was laid off, he reinvented himself at least two or three times. He did different things. And he just always had a really good attitude about it, never worried about it, and it worked out fine for him. So, was he an entrepreneur? I think maybe later in life a little bit, but no, I um, I actually got started by accident, I think. I, I was studying economics at Santa Clara University, which was not a good fit for me, and I took an art class by mistake. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm in my like early 20s. I take an art class and I fall in love working with my hands. I go home. I tell my dad, I, I said, hey, I, I want to be an artist. And he was like, you want to do what? And I said, I, I want to be an artist. And he said, well, you, you must like to draw. And I said, no. And he said, well, you, you must like to paint then, right? I said, no, I don't like to do that either. So he let me change majors and basically jump off the cliff. Now, what father does that? It's interesting looking back. He was very brave. Um, He knew that I needed to find something that that was going to make me happy. So, I just took started taking art classes and realized I wasn't going to be this great artist. But there's something about being being creative that I really loved. You see, every time I read about artists, they seem to create. They never retired. They loved it so much. And I loved working with my hands, so I just combined working with my hands with a little bit of business. Okay, so and that's how I got started. I knew that no one would hire me because I really didn't have any skills. My my family um you know, it's kind of funny, my they never they never had me go out and get a job, although I had a few jobs. They never prepared me for life, so I don't know if that was a good thing or not. But um, I knew once I had to get out in the real world that I had to find a way to make a dollar, and and since I had uh, school was not easy for me, I realized, I realized I didn't think anybody would hire me. So I created my own job. That's how I got started.
0: Okay, let's talk about you creating your own job. Was that with the uh, rotating label that you uh, invented, or was this something prior to that?
1: You know, it's, it was prior to that. I was watching – now, this is many, many years ago. On Friday night, I think I was watching Dallas on Friday night. I think everybody was watching it. And there was a. I was sitting on this couch, and someone um, was sitting there next to me and took a piece of nylon or – and took a little piece of cotton and sculpted a little face out of out of nylon. It was, I guess, it was soft sculpture. Is what it was. And it was a cute little face. And I thought, wow, that's really cute. And I thought, let me try that. So I I, I made a face too, and I I thought it was really kind of clever. So I just started making things out of women's nylons and cotton, <laughs> and I, I would sew funny faces. And then I took them out to a I guess a little arts and crafts festival at the local elementary school. And there was, I had a little table. I brought everything I made and it was on, it was a country. It was up in the hills of Los Gatos, California. And I just tried to, I I wanted to sell my little creations. You've seen people do that before, right? And. Oh yeah. And my father showed up later that day at the very end of the day, because I told him I wanted to make things and sell them. And he showed up and, and he said to me, "Um, how'd you do? And I said, well, I did fantastic. He goes, well, how many did you sell? And I said, well, I didn't sell any. <laughs> he kind of looked at me kind of funny. But he could tell like I liked it. I liked the people. And it was my first time trying to sell something. So, you know, you make mistakes. And I did. But I, I went back out uh, later and, and I changed my designs a little bit. And they started to sell. So, I sold things at street fairs, county fairs, state fairs, wherever I could set up a table for about five years, and I made everything myself and learned a lot about designing things quickly and if they didn't sell, kick it to the curb, because in order to pay the rent, you had to come up with something someone wanted.
0: Okay, so you learned to iterate fast at that point.
1: You know, yes, and and I think that was really important because even today – what I've been sharing with other people of how to test an idea very, very quickly. And it was because I was supporting myself, paying the rent and eating. And And if it didn't work, you know, I would have to get a job. <laughs> okay, so, wow, that wasn't going to work. So I figured it out and just had a really good time. And I did it everywhere. Um, I loved it. Were you married at that point? No. I I don't think I was um, marriage material at that point. Uh, I was st- still trying to figure out. I knew deep down I knew if I could sell something on a street corner in downtown San Jose, there's a very good chance I could probably sell that anywhere. And I was fascinated by that. You know how do you how do you duplicate that? And, and in my mind, even though my friends and family kind of thought I was the biggest loser on the planet, I thought I was doing something really magical. I thought that was very difficult and I still do today. And so I learned a lot about people. I learned a lot about manufacturing. I learned a lot about creating things very quickly. But the big goal was how do I duplicate it? And I met someone that um, started to teach me how to do that.
0: In a sense, you were almost an alchemist at that point.
1: I thought it was pretty cool, actually, and it, I got very good at it, and um, I was making it by hand, and I was really fascinated by how do I scale it? And so, when I met this person, um, Steve Askin, he's, he's actually a good friend today. After 40 years, we still talk, he, uh, I met him, and he had a factory down in Los Angeles, and he started carrying all the things I made, and before you know it, they were selling all around the country. And he, he had me teach his factory how to make them. So I learned a little bit about licensing. I learned a little bit about manufacturing and selling. And like I said, he's a good friend even today.
0: What was your first successful mass-produced item that you would consider successful?
1: Well, after Steve, um, we kind of kind of went separate ways for a few years. And I was still making things and selling them at some of the county fairs. And I met someone that said, can you make teddy bears? And I said, no. And they said, are you a pattern maker? And I said, no, I I make these by hand. There's no pattern. And they said, have you ever tried? I said, no. And so this friend showed me a a pattern and, and before long, I taught myself how to be a pattern maker, which is really an odd thing. But I was—I studied sculpture. That's what I did study, study in art because I loved to make things. And so I was able to figure out how to make stuffed animals. And it was kind of an—it's a very odd thing to think that someone can actually do that. So my very first job, I guess, um, I was probably 27 years old at the time, and there was a very large company in San Francisco called Dakin, and they made stuffed animals. And after I practiced a few times, I just went over there and found the office, knocked on the door and said, hey, I make stuffed animals. (laughs) They're like, geez. And just by chance the person that was making this very realistic looking, it was called the elegant line or something, very realistic looking stuffed animal said, the person just left. I said, okay. And they said, can you make stuffed animals? I said, sure. Basically, I hadn't made just a couple. And they said, here's some fabric, come back in two weeks with the life-size golden retriever. (laughs) And so, I grabbed the fabric and came back two weeks later and they were like, wow, you can do this. And I said, I just kind of figured it out. And I said, yeah. And then they said, well, we we want 25 a year of these these realistic looking stuffed animals and we'll pay you $3,000. And that was like a lot of money back then. I thought, you got to be kidding me. So they gave me a pass to go to the zoo to study animals. I made sea lions and orangutans. And and the first time I saw something I had made for Dakin, I, this was probably the biggest time. When one of the biggest moments in my life. I was at FAO Swartz, the toy company, and I was downtown. It was February around Valentine's. I was in New York at Toy Fair and I walked into FAO Swartz and there was my work at one of the, you know, one of the best toy stores in the world. And, and to think that I was making things on the street corner and now I was in New York, <laughs> I thought, well, wow, I made a pretty big jump. So I was pretty, pretty happy about it.
0: Yeah, that had to be a proud moment in your life.
1: It shocked me because everybody thought I was kind of out of my mind. And here I was, um, standing there looking at my work and then, um, I left Dakin and took a job at Worlds of Wonder. And Worlds of Wonder was just a startup company. And they launched Teddy Ruxpin and LaserTag. And I was employee number 20. I read an article on a Sunday paper because I was in Fremont and knocked on the door again. I like to knock on doors, if you can tell. And knocked on the door and said, you need me. And they said, I said, what do you do? I I, I designed Plush for Dakin, the, the biggest company in the world. And, they, and so they hired me. <laughs> it was kind of like going from living out of, you know, a very small apartment. And my life changed overnight. How involved were you with Teddy Ruxpin? Well, yeah, pretty... Well, there's a prototype there. One of the first Teddy Ruxpins was a prototype, and then the original Teddy Ruxpin. I was employee number 20. They were just manufacturing Teddy and I eventually became manager of design at Worlds of Wonder and I lived over in the Far East for, for months at a time. And one of part of my job was to make sure Teddy looked pretty good coming off the production line. And what does that really mean? Well Teddy was just talking Teddy Bear with this with his mouth, right? And if you put too much, you know, stuff stuffing in the nose, the mouth doesn't move. So I'd be on that production line with all these women and they, you know, they they giggled and laughed about here is this tall guy there with all these women and I would show them how much to put in the nose for Teddy to make sure the mouth would move. And I would weigh it out. I had a little scale and I would weigh it out this much. And then the next day I'd come back and the scale was gone and the mouth wasn't moving. I'd go back and put the scale there to make sure Teddy was working correctly. So I had a little bit to do with Teddy, um, but the outfits, Teddy has a lot of outfits. And I remember there was a Christmas party at Worlds of Wonder and I was all of us was going to the, the, the president, the CEO's home. It was Christmas time. So I made a little Christmas outfit for Teddy. And little did I know what that would ha- what, what happened because I brought it there. It was a big hit. And Next thing you know we made outfits for Teddy for all around the world yeah
0: it's crazy. Something you were just doing, kind of on a whim, that you didn't really think would take off, took off.
1: I thought it was just a nice gift, but little did I know that what a little um, that little outfit. Of course, Teddy went on lots of adventures, so we made outfits for basically all around the world. My office did.
0: So let's switch gears just just a little bit. You know, you, I've read that you consider product licensing the best business model.
1: Why is that so? When I was on the production line with Teddy Ruxpin, something my father had said to me. He said, Steve in order to create great wealth, you, you, you need to find something that does not require your hands or your presence and has a multiplying effect. And I remember when he said that to me, I didn't really understand what that meant, but I sure did when I was on that production line. I was over in Hong Kong, China for over three months, very lonely, and the inventor of Teddy Ruxpin was not there. He had licensed or rented his technology to World's of Wonder. So he wasn't doing this by hand anymore. He wasn't there. He wasn't present. And it had a multiplying effect. Of fact because he had a factory making them for him. So that's when it, this light went on that this licensing, product licensing business model was something I was very interested in because he was collecting a million dollars a month in royalties. Now that's kind of crazy, right? So, But I liked it because he he was just using his creativity and everybody else was doing the work. In fact, everybody was working for him. And that business model was very attracted to someone like myself that didn't want to do some of the other things yet you have to do to run a business. But the the biggest benefit about product licensing today is really speed you see you know you're watching shows on shark tank of course and you're watching people on amazon and you're watching all these people do these startups. Well, the success rate of startups is very low. In fact, they don't like to talk about uh, you know the six, the, the failure rate of startups, but it's very very low. It takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of time. And if you're really successful today, you will be copied, and you will be copied so fast. If you do a crowdfunding campaign before you before the campaign even ends, they'll be selling it somewhere on Amazon. So, and even Amazon now is is jumping in there, and you know. Maybe might be influenced by your work. So if, if you really want to be smart today, you want to leverage um, what can you do to be the first, sell first, sell fast. And the best way to do that is to license an idea to a company that already has shelf space. See, they have everything in place. So you collect a royalty on the wholesale price, they do all the heavy lifting, and that allows you to come up with more ideas. So it has that multiplying effect again, my father talked about. So product licensing to me is is an ideal business model for for startups, for companies, because you can license some technology, you can keep some separ- some technology, if you want to. You can leverage the size of a company. They can protect your idea because of their size. So, there's so many benefits to it. And there's no financial risk. You don't have to quit your day job. You don't have to do anything silly. You could just be creative. That's why I love it so much. There's a lot of financial risk, you know, getting it manufactured, oh. the float. Pe- yeah, people really, I don't think people really grasp what it takes. Um, and I did, you know, I have taken a few products to market myself and really simple ideas. I, I took a, a line to funny shaped guitar picks um, they were in the shape of skulls and vampires and even mickey mouse but basically it was only a 3 cent piece of plastic and we have eventually sold our guitar picks in 10,000 retail stores from Walmart to 7-Eleven we sold them around the world but it cost so much money i mean the first order from Walmart was a i had to come up with a quarter of a million dollars just to fill that order with the with the 3 cent piece of plastic so i don't think people really understand it. I I think they're confused by it. I think they're going to sell a few on Amazon, maybe manufacture a few in their garage. (laughs) So, it's like, okay. If, if that's your mindset, you'll always be in your garage. But if you really want to sell product, it takes it takes quite a bit of cash. And the other thing too, if you're gonna sell it then the big stores, the big retailers, you had mentioned it's the float game. You know, they you know you have to pay the manufacturer that makes it for you, and then you sell it, you know, you wholesale it to a, a retailer and then they pay you in ninety days. 60, 90 days. So you have this area, this this sixty days of when you no know, one incomes that coming in. So it's called the float. But today you can sell on Amazon, right? And where there's no float game because you're selling straight to com, you know consumers, but still realize you need to have some inventory and you need to market it. You need to create demand. I mean, running a business takes a lot of work. Yeah. And, and if you want to do that, then that's perfect. If you have that personality where you want to manage the finances and employees and health insurance and all that fun stuff, then yes, be an entrepreneur. But if you want to be creative and you want to leverage the power of companies, licensing might be a different business model to look into. I may need to change the
0: name of the podcast then, The Product Development Over 40.
1: Well, you know what's really crazy? I'll be 65 in June, and I'm still in the game. You can do this forever. I mean, you, you don't have to retire. I have a product. Um, I work with uh, with a few inventors called Fishbone. Fishbone packaging. that eliminates the plastic rings on um, on beverages. So we licensed it to a very large package company, and and they do all the heavy lifting. We still we're still very much involved, but that's another part of the the licensing business model. We leverage our design to a very large company to really implement it. For big ideas, If it's a great business model. Um, for even simple ideas, it's, it's a great business model too. But And we do have students that have taken my course from 18 to 82, living in every part of the world with no financial, you know, you, you don't have to file patents or build prototypes or all that crazy stuff that like gets expensive. What I'm trying to teach everybody, anybody can do it at any time. You don't have to do, you don't have to quit your job you can do this for the rest of your life and have a blast at it. And
0: getting back to your invention about the placement for the six-pack rings, that's a noble idea.
1: Yeah, you can see it here, I think. Um, here, yeah, right over here. Yeah, that's on a, a new product, but it, that's a big idea. Those are a little bit more complicated, but if you understand how licensing works, the ideas don't even have to be your own. That's the other thing I try to tell everybody. Fishbone is not my idea. I, I just understand licensing. I'm part of that team. So So, you know, once you understand, it could be your friend's idea, it could be somebody else's idea, it could be something you see. But once you understand that the process of product licensing, can help if you understand it.
0: Is now a good time to get into product licensing as far as like with the democratization of all of the utilities and, you know, Amazon, everything
1: being more accessible than it was? I think it's a fascinating fascinating time to be an entrepreneur. I think if you're an entrepreneur, you should look at every method because sometimes products are maybe best if you if you bring them to market yourself. If you have an idea that's that you don't have to sell at brick and mortar, maybe if you don't have to manufacture over in China, you know, there's ways to sell online to reach a large audience that you can bypass the everybody now. Okay. So that's a really great business. Just think about that. I mean, you can control everything. Now you still have to do a lot of work, of course. And, you know, I tell everybody the hardest part is creating demand. You can have a great product, but if no one can find it, all right, you have a problem. So, but what a wonderful time. I mean, there's companies that will do the fulfillment. They'll do everything for you how what a wonderful time and you don't mm-hmm. have to have all this inventory like you used to used to have so yes it's great some products though maybe are a little bit more complicated and you need you know, some offshore manufacturing, or you need a company that's got great distribution in place. It all depends on what you want to do with your time, depends on what your skill set is. I tell everybody, if you want to venture an idea, you know, might be a good idea to find some partners, but whatever you do, make sure you, it's a, it's always a knowledge issue. People think it's a money issue. It's not a money issue. It's a knowledge issue. You know, the process of retailing, to going to trade shows, to do packaging, to do finance, all those things, you you're going to need someone that can help you with all that. If not, you're going to spend years at this. And if you're 40, you know, that's not a great use of your time. So find some partners that do understand other parts of it. So I see a lot of entrepreneurs try to strike it out on their own. And they think it's just about the idea. The idea is just big enough. People will come. No, 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 no. It's not like that. You need to partner with people that do understand parts of the business Understand it's going to take a lot more time than you think it's going to be. Find something you're extremely passionate about and be willing to be flexible be willing to fail you will fail. So if you're going to find someone to partner with, make sure you find someone that's done it multiple times. They have failed repeatedly and they're still happy. It sounds like your family did prepare you well in that you've you've taken a lot of risks,
0: you obviously are not afraid of rejection or at least it doesn't seem that way. You know, you've
1: obviously been successful and because of that you know, it's really interesting. This failure thing is really an interesting word. I've been failing since the second grade. Okay, so let's get that straight. I barely, I barely passed the second grade. So I've had tutors my whole life. I was tested in my late forties, and it was determined I have a severe learning disability. Big surprise there. Um, So, I'm very, I wouldn't say I'm comfortable with failure. It irritates me, but it does not stop me. You see, I I think what I've realized, you know, for example, I write a lot. I've written a thousand articles on licensing. I write lots of books. I'm not a writer. (laughs) I try to tell everybody. So. How do you write so much if you're not a writer? Well, you don't have to be a writer. You know, if, if I if I have good content and if I can deliver it to someone that does write well, they can write in my voice. And I can, you know, I've got my iPhone now. I can dictate into it. And next thing you know, it, I, I have a transcript. Someone could can clean it up, clean up my work. So I guess what I'm saying is I don't let obstacles stop me because we all have them. And I have probably more than most. And I think obstacles are just really great opportunities for people to shine if you just look at them that way. So getting back to the failure, yes, I'm probably the biggest failure I'd ever meet, but, I've, but I still have had a tremendous amount of success. Yeah, so I think they go hand in hand, actually.
0: It's kind of like the baseball analogy of baseball player at bat in any other industry. If, you know, fail half the time at bat or in whatever you're trying to do, you're probably going to be coached and maybe asked to leave. But in baseball, you're hitting 500.
1: (laughs) Well, I, um, I was in college my freshman year. I was going, I was a senior, well, between my senior year in high school, first year in college i went ahead and and got i took a job summer job and it was door to door sales and like that that's got to be the worst job you could ever have but it's actually the best job you could ever have and i remember being on this bus with all these people and they would drop us off and we would all go out for an hour and come back and meet up and and i was pretty darn good at it and i realized and everybody else was was not happy, I, they would say, well, how many people got this? And I would raise my hand. I, I was just happy. And they were. everybody was looking at me. Why is this guy so happy with this? I realized really very quickly that you just have to knock on doors. And there's going to be a lot of people behind those doors that probably are not going to want what you have. <laughs> okay. But that's okay, too. If you treat everybody as a friend, every door is okay. Every door is just, hey, I'm just, hey, I'm here. I'm doing this. Glad to meet you. No big deal. You go to the next door. So it was never a failure. It was just more finding the door that opened. And I realized that I think success is like that too. You have to knock on doors and and realize that most of those doors will shut. But every once in a while, one would open. And I I learned that when I was 18. And it was probably, I would say, one of the most important lessons I learned was um, keep knocking on doors and don't be afraid of them to close and shut because it's always a numbers game, you know, and knock on 10 doors and one opens. All right, I want to knock on 100 and I know 10 are going to go open. So now it's just a numbers game.
0: That's all it is. One way of looking at that, I guess, is if I, if I can get 10 does, I'll, I'll get a yes.
1: That's the way I looked at it. I still look at it that way today. If you're not knocking on doors of opportunity, I can guarantee nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to walk by and magically find you. It's just not going to happen that way. So if you learn to knock on doors of opportunity, anything can happen. So switching back to the product licensing, how are you coming up with some
0: of your ideas? Or what's a a good strategy that you're using?
1: Well, I'm not that creative, so I had to figure out something different. Most creative people, I think, they see a problem and then they come up with a solution. Well, I'm not a very handy guy, so I don't see very many problems. Uh, And so what I do, I do something a lot easier than that. I think that's too hard to work. I find an area I'm passionate about. Let's say basketball. And I would go down and look at all the indoor. I love playing basketball, but I wanted, to, I wanted to be able to play indoors while I'm you know, just coming up with ideas. And so I bought this indoor basketball game from Ohio Art. I loved it. And the backboard was square. And I thought to myself, and this is the way I come up with ideas. I go, why does it have to be square? Well, why does it have to be made out of plastic? Why? I just ask my question, why? Why, 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 why? And then I start playing with different things. I, I would change the material. It changed the shape, and I would play games. So I would look at a company's product line and play games. And every once in a while, something would just jump out. And in the case of the basketball, it was called the Michael Jordan Wall Ball. I loved the Michael Jordan, and he in the the company Ohio Art had a little logo of Michael Jordan. It's really teeny, and I thought, why is he so teeny? So I cut a poster out and slapped it on the backboard, and I go, now he, now he's nice and big. He should be big. Yeah. Um, and it changed the shape from square to the shape of profile of Michael Jordan. Great graphics now. And why does it have to be, you know, plastic? Why can't it be paper? Because it's better print quality and less expensive, and sure enough, I showed it to this company, Ohio Art, in three days out of contract on that simple idea, and it sold for over ten years. And there's no patents, and um, it produced about a hundred thousand dollars in royalties the first year. And it probably took me about ten dollars to make, maybe a little bit more. Wow! But I always play the games, so I know that companies, if they don't innovate, they will die, and I know that the, the the designers at these companies probably are not happy because designers like to do their own thing and they like to have their name on it and pats on the back. And people that create don't create for a paycheck. They create because of love. So I, I had a, I, I just kind of knew that most of those designers probably weren't working. They wouldn't be working as hard as I would be. So I thought I could out-design them because I love it more than they do. And sure enough, that it just kind of worked. So I I'm not a very creative person, but I have a process. And that process is looking at a company's product line, and asking questions, being curious, and, and then making small changes. Because I, I don't think you have to reinvent the wheel. I think that takes too much education. It's too hard to do. And people aren't going to take those type of ideas. I think companies take ideas that are improvements on existing ideas. And the reason why there's no risk because they're already selling. So if you can make a new and improved idea, it's really easy to license. So that's been my process.
0: Are there any industries that you recommend targeting that are especially looking for new new products? in 2021 and
1: are there any industries that you would suggest avoiding (laughs) oh yeah there's well first of all this this topic of license product licensing and the reason why it's so popular is that companies have embraced have embraced open innovation and what that means is that they realize that hey i might have 10 designers in the back and they're probably not that happy (laughs) okay and they're probably going to go home at five o'clock what happens if i open the door and have 10,000 people submit ideas to me Wow. That's called open innovation. They're open for people like us to submit ideas to them. Now, the toy industry has has embraced open innovation probably 100 years. Uh, other industries are fairly new to this, but most industries now in the United States have have a not all of them, but a lot of them have looked at open innovation and looked at what a great business model. We don't have to pay you until we take your idea. How you like that? You're going to work for us on spec. We don't have to... We only pay you when we take it, and we only pay you when we sell it. What a great business model for them. All right, so it increases their chances of success. So open innovation is very popular in the kitchen category. It's very popular in the pet industry, hardware. It's very popular in DRTV, as seen on TV. In fact, all of those products you see on commercials like late night, those are all from inventors. The pet, I mean, the list goes on and on and on. The companies that are not medical, automotive, the list just goes forever. The industries that are not inventor-friendly would be the tech industries. I mean, try to call someone at Facebook. Try to call someone at LinkedIn or Microsoft. They don't even have a phone, I don't think. So those companies are very hard to work with. So if you have the latest app or some other technology, I kind of stay away from that industry just because they're not user-friendly. And plus, they, they sue each other a lot. So I stay away from those guys.
0: Is there a profile as far as how big of a company is? If it's real big, or are they more or less inventor-friendly?
1: That's a wonderful question. We all have a tendency to want to go after the biggest company because right. they have the big brand we know. And they have the best distribution, right? But the problem is the large companies don't need to innovate as fast. They don't need to take risk. Now, maybe when they were a little bit smaller, they took a lot of risk. But when they get to be really big and market leaders, they don't want to take any risk at all. They don't have to. So they would rather the smaller companies create some category, then they come in. So I would highly recommend going after the mid-sized companies. Now, they're still big. Trust me, mid-sized can still be really, really big. So find the industries that have multiple players. That's a good sign. Find an industry that's got quite a few mid-sized players. Another good sign. Find the industries that are inventor-friendly. Now, how do you do that? You can ask them. See if they license ideas. See if they work with inventors. See if they embrace open innovation. I, also, I always tell everybody, to in order to, to determine who to work with, their license and idea to, always type in a company's name, complaints, and lawsuits. And if they've got terrible customer service, probably not a good company, right? If they're not on social media, I'd probably avoid them too. If they've changed their name you know, often, I would avoid them as well. You want to find the best protection because people always ask me, Steve, why don't people just steal your idea? Well, if an open innovation stole ideas, the doors close very quickly. So and because of social media today, it doesn't make sense. But find the companies that do work with us. It's the best protection you can have. People think it's about a patent. I would say 99% of all the ideas that we see get licensed, there's no patent. 97% of all patents never recoup the cost it takes to file them. So they need to do a little bit more homework. So what what we're seeing today, we I have a company called InventRight, R-E-G-H-T, where we see products get licensed almost weekly and every category you can imagine there's never a patent and sometimes there's not even a prototype which really is like steve what do you mean not a prototype well i tell everybody sometimes it's only a 3d computer generated rendering now sometimes they're they're going to want proof of concept so if they do then build a prototype but be friendly be workable find inventor-friendly companies and get creative and send them ideas pretty simple to do Okay. So I've come up with this great idea for a product. What are my next steps? Watch my YouTube channel. We have close to 50,000 subscribers with 700 videos. Now you don't have to watch all 700 videos, but keep on watching a few of them. You'll like it. They're short. We cover every topic you can imagine. Will they steal my idea? Do I need a patent? Do I need a product? All the things everybody always asks, we, we address all those. And also you can find the articles I've written on Forbes, Inc. and Entrepreneur. Like I said, I've written a thousand articles, a million words over the last decade. But if you really are serious, please find my book, One Simple Idea. That book, um, has been translated in five different languages. It's been taught. It's been used um, in quite a few universities now. But One Simple Idea from McGraw-Hill basically goes through these 10 steps. And it's an easy read. I think you'll really enjoy it. But you can find it now on Amazon. It's called One Simple Idea. Make sure it's the the most recent one, expanded. Okay, the one in
0: 2015? Yeah,
1: I, I, would, I would read that because, number one, it's just simple. I'm a pretty simple guy. I wrote it that way. And it gets everybody gets started. I see a lot of ideas where people have read the book, One Simple Idea, and watched the videos and they license ideas all the time. King Solomon
0: said that there's supposedly nothing new under the sun. And I've I've gone through and looked and there is something that's very similar to my product. Does that mean game over?
1: No. No. In fact that's good news. That's actually good news, right? Because if there's something similar, that means there's a market for it, right? If you have an idea that's too new, requires too much education, that's not a great thing. If you find an idea that, hey, I I found this, I have this idea, I cannot find it anywhere. I don't know if that's a great idea either. Most innovation starts here and starts there starts to be improvements. All right. And it's safe. That's a safer bet for companies to take those type of projects on. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. If you find something similar, look at it very carefully and make sure you know your point of difference. That's all. Okay. So getting ready to pitch my
0: product. I've got no industry connections. What should I do next? How do I get my foot in the door at a company and find out who to talk to?
1: Oh, that's easy. Um, The best way now is using LinkedIn, having a LinkedIn profile. We call it your digital handshake because today no one wants to talk on the phone, right? Even your kids don't want to talk to you on the phone. They want you to text message them now. So reach out, make sure your profile is filled out. Make sure you have a nice, appropriate picture and reach out on LinkedIn. Make a connection. You don't have to pay for the premium part. It might take you a little while. Connect with me, right? I have 15,000 connections. And before you know it, you'll reach out to someone in sales or marketing. And just don't try to pitch. Build a relationship first. Reach out and say, I'm a product developer. I'd like to submit an idea to your company. Do you take outside submissions? Go slow. Don't make a link. Don't tell me you have a billion-dollar idea. Don't do any of those things. Do you pitch them in person or... Has it gotten to more online? You don't have to pitch in person. You don't have to be a salesperson either. Because most of us aren't. Right. So we tell everybody so it's a one page, it's called a sell sheet. It's a one page advertisement. The biggest image on that one page is your product. Maybe it's a 3D computer generated sample. Maybe it's a prototype. It's basically, here's my product. At the very top is my one-line benefit statement, my value proposition. Why would anybody care, right? You have that at the very top. So people grab it instantly and they go, hey, I want want to learn more. And then you might have four bullet points. It's easier to use, store it anywhere. You know, four little bullet points and then have your contact information down below. And if you have a prototype, do a a one-minute video. Show a problem then show a solution and have a little button on your sell sheet to click here. So, no, you don't have to dance on the tabletop and do a presentation. Everybody today are are sending sell sheets to companies. And if they do want more, it's a Zoom call or Skype call. Yeah, very informal. They always talk about patents. You know, most most products on the market don't have patents. And, And, you know, I tell everybody, too if Apple, the largest company in the world cannot defend their intellectual property, what chances does anybody else have? So it's not about patents anymore. It's all about finding good companies that value us, reach out to them, be reasonable, edu- you know, educate yourself and see if your product is a good fit for them.
0: I've talked with a company, you know, we've got we're going back and forth now and they, you know, we're trying to decide commissions and I'm, you know, crazy and I think I should get 40%. <laughs> <laughs> what is a good commission, and are there any other things that you really need to focus on in a negotiation?
1: Yeah, that's a tough thing. I, I tell everybody you really you you really need someone to help you a little bit. you know I, I would never do that by yourself. Okay, And I, I don't think you need a lawyer either, uh, because parts of that licensing agreement will be business terms. So you can educate yourself or have someone that's done it before. Royalty rates, standards about 5% of their wholesale price. Sometimes it can be a little higher, depends on how much work you've done. Sometimes a little lower, it depends on the volumes. Right. It's all pretty standard. Once you learn the language of licensing and you've read a couple books, you'll realize it's pretty straightforward. You are going to rent your product to a company and they're going to pay you for every one they sell.
0: Okay. What are some common mistakes that you see people make doing the product licensing?
1: I think people are trying to, you know, like any profession, And that's why people are listening to this podcast. Like any profession, you need to educate yourself. And there's a lot of people that are going to try to do it on a YouTube or a book, which you can't. But at the end of the day, every profession, you've either been educated somehow. You've had a mentor or coach or you've gone to school or something. This is no different. Um, I don't know of any professional athlete that's watched a YouTube channel that became a professional football player. I don't know of any plumber. That's watch your YouTube channel now is a professional plumber. So I do think education is the first thing you do need. It's not a money problem. It's not a patent problem. But there's a lot of people that want to do it themselves, which I think is perfectly fine. But just make sure you have a lot of time on your hands. You're willing to fail. I think you're not saving yourself any money. I think you, th- you think you are. I just don't think you really are. People that like to do it themselves, I think... I think it's okay, and I think you can, but you, you need to educate yourself somehow. Right? There's some areas that you don't want to cut any corners, and, and one of them is negotiations. That's probably the biggest mistake I see people make. They get a licensing agreement, they try to do it themselves, and they just end up regretting it.
0: Now, is negotiations something that InventRight will, will help inventors or product developers with?
1: Yeah, we, we have a negotiation coach. we probably see more licensing agreements than any company in the world at this point. So we know the process. There's a sequence of events that have to happen. You don't want to scare a company off. You don't want to be too... F- too quick. You want to leverage maybe a little bit of market demand. You want to make sure you're giving them all the right things they need to take some risk away. It's not as easy as people think it is. Um, there's a certain skill to it. And part of it's just taking your time. And most people get in a hurry. And that's not the greatest approach. And a lot of people, um, you know, there's licensing attorneys have gone to school. I mean, think about it. Trying to do something yourself where someone's got a law degree, it it doesn't make sense. So, But in a licensing agreement, there's really business terms and legal terms. So you really need to get help from someone that knows the business terms and then someone that knows the legal terms. It's a combination, but I would never, ever do it yourself. Every time I see someone do it themselves, it's always something that's gone terribly wrong and now they don't know what to do about it.
0: What's been some of the biggest InventRight
1: success stories? And I know that there's several on the YouTube
0: channel as well.
1: Yeah, the biggest one we cannot really talk about. I mean, I'll talk a little bit about it.
0: Can we talk around
1: it? Well, it's crazy. Um, it It's a technology that's on every truck. Mm-hmm. The negotiations was very long and very difficult. Um, there was a very big cash payment, probably the biggest cash payment I've ever seen. But the inventor did sign a very tough NDA, non-disclosure confidentiality agreement because the, the company, the automobile company wanted to say they were the inventors of it. Gotcha. Yeah. So we don't, that's probably the biggest deal I've seen with the cash payout. I, I usually don't see that much of a cash date because those big companies, they, they want to, they want to pay you one time and go away. And it's, it's life changing. Yeah. That was probably the biggest uh, we've seen them as big as, you know, 10 million. I've seen them, you know, they're all over the board. Okay. Some of them don't do well, too. I mean, you have to realize not everything's going to be a big hit here. Right. I've had a lot of my ideas <laughs> that I licensed it to them and they come to market and they don't do well. <laughs> so I do have a YouTube cha- a YouTube video on InventRight TV that shows um, all the money I've made in my career. So people should watch. If they want to know how much money you can make, watch that video. And it shows from simple ideas to complex ideas. And I talk about what it took to license them. How much money I spent and how much time and how much did it return? People are always curious about it. And I don't mind sharing it. Most people don't want to share that information. I'm at the point in my life. I
0: Statute of limitations has expired for the IRS. And et I just, yeah, I, I look at
1: it and go, you know, I'm a pretty much open book on it. But, you know, when you ask someone how much they made, you know, people ask all the time, Steve, why don't you share how much they made? Well, number one, I don't know. Number two, they don't share that with me. And sometimes they're under confidential uh, NDA. I mean, that's like saying how much, you know, that's, that's a very personal thing for people. And I'm not involved in that part of it. I mean, I don't collect royalties for them, so I don't know.
0: Let's talk about what InventRight can do for the individual product development.
1: Well, InventRight, first, well, first of all, all the information we provide, and people think this is the craziest business model, I give it all away for free through the articles, through the YouTube, through the books. I have a 10-step process that we teach students. Now, the only difference is when someone signs up, you, you get a personal coach. And the coach makes sure you do all 10 steps and they make sure you do it right and correct. And if you have any problems, they're there to answer any questions you're going to have because you're going to have a lot of, it doesn't matter how much I write about it. doesn't matter how much, how many YouTube uh, videos I do. Things come up, questions come up. There's obstacles, there's this or that. So your coach is there to make sure everything's answered correctly and to keep you on track, keep you accountable. So you complete the process. That's what the coaching is. And so some people need it. Some people don't. Some people do. But we, we're very particular on who signs up too. We, if they haven't read a few of the books or watched the YouTube channel, we don't sign them up. It, it takes too much education. We want someone, when they come to us, they're really ready to go. I mean, they're like, I'm ready. I want to learn this. I want to be a professional. I've got the time. I've got, I, I'm I'm like there. Those are perfect. But if someone thinks we're going to do the work for them, we don't do that. If someone thinks this is the lottery ticket, I'm gonna be a millionaire. No, 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 we don't. We, we gotta we gotta make this realist. realistic. Can you make money? Yes. Can it be a profession? Yes, it can. Is it gonna take time? Yes, it will. Okay. We hold your hand. Yeah, we have a, a very large community online. We have a we do a lot of things online that are free, but we have a lot of private. We bring on companies looking for ideas so all the students can get to meet those companies personally. It's called Bridge the Gap, so they can build their own relationships with companies. We have an online uh, community where successful inventors you know, pass along to other people. So it's really community-based. We want people to join. We want them to stay with it. We want them to meet other people. Any of my connections or their connections now, it, it's really a place that you feel safe. You have the latest tools, the latest strategies, from simple ideas to complex ideas. Any questions you could possibly have, you have someone watching you. We're just, we're there every step along the way.
0: Is there anything that, you know, you would like to cover that we haven't covered already?
1: No, I would like to say if you have an idea, which everybody probably has had one, uh, if, you, if it's a good idea, if you don't do anything about it, I can guarantee you're going to see it. And I'm sure a lot of us have. You'll be watching TV and go, hey, I have that idea. Or you'll go down to the store and go, there's my idea. It will happen. Um, If you learn the process of licensing, you can share your creativity with the world by leveraging um, that process and have another company take it to market for you. So I would tell anybody, if, if you're creative and you have ideas, learn about licensing. Learn about product licensing. You'll love it and you'll be excited about it. And when your product hits the market for the first time and you get to see it on the store shelf, or on TV, it's, it's a life changer. It definitely changes your perspective.
0: Well, we'll wrap it up with this last question. What's your number one piece of advice for potential you know, product developers?
1: I would say find your passion. Find the area you really love and your work will be better. Your ideas will be fantastic. And also realize your first couple of ideas that you have, um, like mine, won't be very good. But if you stay with it long enough, they do get better. Well, that's a wrap.
0: Thank you for being a guest on Entrepreneurs Over 40, Mr. Key. All right. Thank you very much. Some of my takeaways in our conversation with Stephen Key are that you don't need a patent. As you pointed out, if Apple, the largest company in the world, cannot defend their intellectual property, what chances does any of us have? He also pointed out that we don't need to start a company. There's too much risk involved and you have to float money to pay for your vendors. And by the time you get a product to market, a lot of times it's already being copied. He also pointed out, and this is probably some pretty key advice. You have to knock on doors and realize that most of those doors will shut, but every once in a while, one would open. Keep knocking on doors and don't be afraid of them to close because it's always the numbers game. Knock on 10 doors and one opens. And he also pointed out that we can use LinkedIn to get in front of companies' eyes. Be sure to check us out on episode four where we interview Robert Morales, also known as Traveling Robert of YouTube fame.
1: Thank you for listening to Entrepreneurs Over 40. Check us out at entrepreneursover40.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcast directory.